Luke chapter number 21, all of the discourse, because it speaks about the place that Jesus is at when he is teaching um, his disciples and the location uh, that he is at. The starting off, we uh, get to the first few verses of this chapter is where we're at last Sunday. If you remember the story of the widow's uh, might, and she gave a small offering, monet- um, Financially, it looked like a small offering, but the Lord saw that she gave um, her all. And as we looked at uh, the oppression of the scribes and how at the end of chapter number 20, it said that they were people that were oppressive to the poor, people that had created a, a false system. So as we, in that story, the disciples walk out and others walk out and they see the temple. And this temple was really something to behold. We don't have an equivalent to it um, in our society of all that would have taken place on that property. A 35-acre uh, campus there, temple that was there. The boulders, they said, were, were massive, covered in stone. It would have shined uh, brightly from the position that Jesus and the disciples, when the sun would have been setting, it would have been able to be seen just uh, shining uh, brightly. And so as they walk out of this uh, story, and one of them says, as we see, um, the Bible tells us um, who it is, which of the, um, the disciples ask, uh, Peter, James, and John. It says that they're the ones who um, asked this question. We learned that in Mark. Uh, but they asked the question. If you will look with me in verse number 5 as I read through verse number 7. And as some spake of the temple and how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which you behold, the days will come in that which you shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come the pass? So looking at this incredible uh, building, temple here, and it's overlaid with gold and the big boulder, Jesus responds and says that not a single stone will be left there. It will be brought completely down, which is just shocking to them, the significance of them. They hear that. Isn't this beautiful? And he says it's going to be destroyed. And those listening to them, unless they trusted the words of the Lord, would just say, it's just not possible. They're really for it to be destroyed in this manner does not seem to be the case. This is the same temple that in Luke chapter number 2 that Jesus went into and they couldn't find him. And he said, did you not know that I'll be about my, my father's business? It's the one where he stood not long ago in our reading, same place Jeremiah had stood and said, this has become a den of robbers. It should be a house of prayer, but it's become a, a den of robbers that people looking in don't see God's love for them. Stephen, in the book of Acts, will say, we have heard that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, is what he says. And that didn't go over too well, did it? All right, We know they were not happy about um, him saying that. In Hebrews, we learn that this temple becomes obsolete, is superseded by a climactic sacrifice of Jesus himself. As we continue studying the New Testament, we find that there's a place, a temple that's not made with hands, but are constructed uh, with living stones, that the Holy Spirit resides in us today um, as believers. We could see why there would be great concern for that original audience when he said this is going to be destroyed and wonder, how is this going uh, to happen? Forty years from now, the temple will be destroyed, and uh, we're told in history that the gold is melted and it goes down into the rocks, which causes people to come in and just to turn everything upside down to try to pull that gold out. They don't see that at that time. They don't see the possibility of how this could happen. They don't see the future that we will talk about with the temple um, at the end um, of the age. Uh, They don't see any of that. They just hear God's word and they, they make a decision. 
And so we know why they should be concerned about it, but the question that lays before us here is why should you be concerned about it? Why should that interest you? Eschatology, is is it speculation at best, or is it worse? Is it fear-mongering about the end of the world that always comes um, to seem to be wrong? Many things I'm going to say about this today, but this is one thing when it comes to the study and studying this passage and other passages about it, is if the God of heaven is willing and desirous to reveal anything to us, we should eagerly receive it. I would never say anything of not great significance if the God of heaven has revealed it to us. And so I want to study it. I know it better than I did a couple weeks ago. And I pray at the end of my life I would understand this even better or more fully. Not just in a matter of a timeline, but the words would go deeper into my heart that I would apply them to my life. It matters because knowing the story, the narrative of the Bible matters. Knowing how it begins in Genesis 1 and knowing how it ends at the very end, it matters to us. It matters because it keeps us from falling for a false story. That's what he's going to warn about, is don't be deceived. If you don't know the true story of this world, then you would be deceived for another one. It matters for our living stories. It gives us comfort for when we're standing for him. It gives us strength in our service. It gives us a resolve to resist the things that are unholy. And it makes us more intentionality in following our master with all of our heart. It has a bearing on your life. The words of Jesus to his disciples about the end of the time and about the temple has a bearing upon our lives. This week, as with many weeks, um, I sit with Bible teachers. Some are older and passed away. Dwight Pentecost, Harry Ironside, Warren Wiersbe, James Montgomery Boyce, others. Some are more modern, John MacArthur, Mark Minnick. And I sit with them. And some weeks they don't get along very well, all right? There's some weeks that I'm glad that they're not all in the room at the same time, all right? They would love each other. They would be aligned directionally, which is Jesus is coming back and that he was the Messiah. But there's some issues in which that they wouldn't agree on. What um, succinctious issues like when exactly is the destruction of the temple that Jesus is describing? Has it happened or is it to come? In the first century A.D. 70 or is it something um, in the future with the nation of Israel? Another central thing is when is the coming of Jesus that is described in this discourse? Did Jesus come in the first century? Very few believe that. Um, for, did he come a second time in the first century? Very few would believe that. Nobody that I would read after believes that. But in the future, is there a description of two comings of him coming again? Is there a time he comes to the church and another time he comes and sets up his kingdom? And all of these arguments in this passage are thinly veiled debates over the future of Israel, the millennium, and a pre-tribulation rapture. And all of those things most certainly matter because understanding them help you understand the Bible as you read them. That's why I'd like to challenge you to go past Sunday morning and understand them. Get involved in classes and study it for yourself. It's wonderful. And God's revealed it to us so we should eagerly receive it. But after spending some time, a lot of time in God's Word and a little bit of time with those other people, this week I went and saw my wife's uncle, Ken, um, who was in the hospital, who loves the Lord, but his time on earth is real short now. And you know, um, her uncle Ken, my uncle Ken, um, he wasn't as concerned about what those people thought about the timeline of this story. What he wanted to know was, um, has God's word ever failed? And it hasn't. And when he says something's going to happen, it has. And we have seen it. And we will see it again. Forty years after this happens, the temple gets destroyed. There'll be a revival among the Christians, not because the temple is destroyed, but they would say, God's word is true. 
and every time we see God's word. If it's a promise given to us as a church, it's a promise given to the nation of Israel, when God's word has been delivered on, we should rejoice, and it should cause a stirring um, in our lives. So same questions today, verse 7. And they ask, saying, Master, when and what are, uh, are the signs? And so when will the temple be destroyed? You could say that Jesus is being deliberately vague, or you could just say there's a misunderstanding. And I would never accuse of him being deliberately vague. I don't believe that he is. I believe that he's very clear. As you study each one of these passages, you will see that there's many references of chronology of sequence. It talks about when and then and what's happening next. There's an order to it. And then we're admonished to apply, to see it um, and to uh, for our minds the things we'll be able to see uh, with our own eyes and then we're encouraged in verses 8 here we'll look at through 11 here in a moment to not be deceived to not be misled and then lastly the reason i believe that jesus is clear is because he says that he answered the question Matthew 24, 25, it says, Behold, I have told you before. Mark 13, 23, But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. Then in our passage, verse 31, it says, So likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know you that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. He says that he answered the question that was given. So that's why I would say that I believe that is being clear. What creates confusion for all of us when we come to the Bible is when we bring presuppositions, when we bring something into the passage with us. And there's two things that often get brought into it. You have study Bibles in here, inside of this room. If they have study Bibles or conservative evangelical authors that would write, there would be differences that would have here. Some people would teach what is called a replacement theology. They don't see any future for the nation of Israel. And because they bring that understanding into this passage, they're going to see it differently than those that do. There's another group that would say that all these things have already happened, that this isn't anything futuristic about it. It's already happened. And so when they have that belief that they've gathered from other verses and other portions of the Bible, then they try to import it into this passage, then the passage will have a different understanding to it. So let's look at this passage and we'll understand what's some understanding of what's happened from this time that Jesus spoke to his return to set up his kingdom here on earth. Verse number eight. And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them, but when you shall hear of the wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. So he's giving descriptions of some things that are going to take place, but when they do, do not believe that this is, um, is come, the end has come by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and the great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and diverse places, and famines, and pestilence, and fearful sights, and great signs shall be from, shall be there from heaven. The original audience, which is what we want to know, is what are the people that are listening here? And then after we have that understanding, then we can go, what is it I'm supposed to understand? And the last question we'll ask ourselves today is, based on what I know, now what am I supposed to do with it? That's a process. The Jewish people, they had a very... Um, they had an eschatology. They had an understanding of the end times that they would have taught to other people. The Jews of the first century had a, a pretty well-developed eschatology here, some expectations about the Messiah, and it gets alluded to throughout uh, the Bible. But they did not see the church. 
They did not see what was going on inside of this room. They didn't see that um, in their eschatology uh, that was happening. Uh, what they would have seen is they would have seen that a Messiah was going to come. There'd be a time of terrible tribulation. There'd been chaos, and somebody, Elijah, a forerunner, would have come that would have heralded the Messiah. That would have been, we would know, would be John the Baptist, then would enter the Messiah. That nations would gather around and alley against them and against God, and the result would be the total destruction of hostile powers. And then there would be a renovation in Jerusalem, and the Jews were all dispersed all over the world and have gathered into the city of Jerusalem. There's a lot of parallels between what we know and what Jesus taught and what they were looking for. But we've been seeing it time and time again, right? They didn't see Jesus coming the first time to be that suffering servant. They didn't see Jesus coming in to town riding upon a donkey to say that he was royalty, but also to be going to a cross. There's something that was missing for them. They want it now. They want the kingdom now. They want Jesus to sit upon their throne now. And Jesus is saying, this is not the time that this is going to happen. So even though they wouldn't see us as the church and their eschatology at that time, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't see them in our eschatology. Just because they overlook us doesn't mean we should overlook them. We're not going to play that way, guys, all right? And uh, we're not going to uh, tit for tat for there. We're going to do what is right. So we see a future Israel eschatology. It matters when we read the Bible and our understanding of God's mission in this world, the understanding of, of world events. Paul continues this teaching, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verses 3 through 5, And let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And so he's taking that same theme that Jesus taught on about not being deceived. Don't let people tell you that things are in motion that aren't. We're things that we should be waiting for. Who opposes us and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. He found it. I'll go back to verse number four, if you will. He found that this was important. He says, I've taught this to you guys before, and let me remind you that at the end um, of this world, at a time that we refer to as the tribulation, in that last seven years, in the 70th week of Daniel, uh, for the nation of Israel, there's going to come somebody, and he is going to sit upon uh, the throne um, in the temple, in verse number four, so as that God sitteth in the temple um, of God. And so we see this here um, in our study of the Olivet Discourse. I have a slide for you here. Um, my son will put it up there. And I quite enjoy, I know I give uh, the guys in the back a hard time, but I really enjoy preaching with my son here, all right? And um, so he uh, put, uh, we have this slide right here. And so in, and they're parallel passages. And so we see here that it gets speak, uh, spoken about. Matthew twenty four fifteen. When you therefore shall see the abomination of the desolation, 24-15, and then in Mark, it speaks about the same um, event. And we're talking about a historical event where the, there's a temple and that the Antichrist would come in and that he would do something that was blasphemous, a desolation that would lead to um, a, a destruction uh, that is there. And so when we see this, it means that we will need a temple, that there will have to be a temple. There's not a temple, but there will need to be um, a temple. It's another reminder that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. And they have another week. They have seven more years upon uh, the clock. And this prophecy of Daniel, 
as it says here, that as it was prophesied um, in Daniel, as it makes mention of in Matthew twenty four fifteen, and when it says, "Whoso readeth, let him understand," it's referring here to what's above. Daniel the prophet in Daniel. Chapter 9, we learn that the future, a future ruler will walk in and make a treaty with the people of Israel. And on these terms will be for a week, for seven, um, which is referencing seven years. Week being seven, so for seven years. And that they're going to make a treaty. But halfway through that, midway through it, uh, the rulers will gather their troops around and they'll put an end to the sacrifice that will be started there at the temple. And at the time, this ruler will desecrate the temple, setting up some type of sacrilegious um, object, and that desecration of the temple will continue until the judgment of God is finally um, meted out, and the ruler and the followers about three and a half years. So all of that takes place in Matthew and Mark during a time that we call the beginning of sorrows. And this is a, a big portion of this Olivet uh, Discord. Uh, Mark, Matthew and Mark, they use that, this beginning of sorrows or uh, pain, labor, child um, pain. Those of you that have had uh, children, you would know that the pain that was involved in it. How many of you have ever had eggplant parmesan in here, all right? Eggplant parmesan. Oh, many of you. Okay. All right. And uh, I've had it once in my life. That was plenty for me, all right? And uh, that meant that we had heard somewhere that if we have eggplant parmesan, our first son, it would help the contractions come and the baby would be here sooner. So that, that whole event, so the beginning of sorrows, those beginning labor pains that are happening, Matthew and Mark use it. Dr. Luke doesn't use it, all right? Even though he's a doctor, he doesn't use that um, expression. And so just a quick overview is that there is a time uh, that we know of from the Bible. Jesus is speaking to um, people here that will make up the first church. He's speaking to uh, the crowd here, the nation of Israel. And he's speaking about when he will return at the end of the ages, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and he will set up um, a kingdom. But we know, those of us that's called the church age, we know that there is a, um, an, a certain event that's happening at an uncertain time. And that when the rapture comes and when we are taken away, the church is removed and we meet him in the air, that sets in order a series of events that you could set your watch by and your calendar by. And it's laid out for us so clearly. And we have prophecy of it and Jesus speaks about it. But what we don't know is when this event is going to happen. When the end of the time of the Gentiles, the age of the Gentiles end and that 70th week starts. And so we wait for that. And we have, when we speak about it in the Bible, we, we look for it in a hopeful manner, that it's something that we have hope for in life um, and death, and we take comfort um, in it. So in this Olivet Discourse, I have a couple slides I'd like to show you here. And so when we talk about the harmony of Scripture, when somebody's speaking about, go ahead and put that first slide here. And so when we, we look at it, so the first time we were in the Olivet Discourse was in 2015. Then we we're in the same story in the book of Mark um, in 2018. And now we're in the story in the book of Luke as they're recording the same sermon that Jesus has been given. And so we look at the passages um, and where they line up about how, well, this when, this is how it's said in Matthew, this is how it's said in Mark, and then you can lay them out uh, beside each other, and you can say, well, this is a cross-reference. This is a parallel form. And just as you can see, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Mark, and he went out from the temple. Luke, and some spake of the temple was adorned. And so that's where the beginning of the story starts. The next slide here would show you, we go a little bit farther. And so we see immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun darkened, the sun darkened, and in Luke... 
25. And so we find if you lay them out, and some of you probably have books like this, and you just see it's a parallel. It's really helpful like when we're studying the last week of Christ, right? We want to see what it's like in all the different gospel records. But we have this as well um, in this story. Well, there's one thing I'd like to make mention of in this next slide here, which is this phrase that's used in Luke. It says, and they shall deliver you up. And then they, for they shall deliver you up. But in Luke, we have this phrase, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you. And if you look with me in verse number 12, and that's how this begins. It says, but before all these, before this beginning of sorrows, before this seven years of tribulation, before these things, we have a portion of scripture here that Luke gives that I do not believe has a parallel in Matthew or Mark, that he is giving a description of something uh, that's going to take place uh, during this time with us, when he's speaking to the disciples and all the way into um, the rapture. Verse 12, But before all these they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and in the prisons, but being brought before the kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. First of all, if I want you to see there, is that the reason for the persecution is given. It is for his name's sake. And we should not be surprised. From their perspective, there could have been some surprise because they're wanting Jesus. And we see it time and time again. They cannot let go of this idea that Jesus was not setting up an earthly kingdom. And he is preparing them. He doesn't want them to stumble. He doesn't want them to be surprised by the fact that persecution is coming. You and I should by now learn to expect it. We should actually be more concerned when we don't see it than when we do see it. Because Jesus tells us it is going uh, to happen. And so, and this for a testimony. You know, one of the wonderful things, so the reason is for his namesake. It isn't that Christians are unkind or unlovable and they're not nice. It's because they, they hate the Lord. The persecution comes for his namesake. If you're being persecuted as a Christian and it isn't for his namesake, it might just be because you're rude, all right? That's not, that's not persecution. Persecution comes when people are trying to get to our Savior through us, when they are upset with his truth of God's word. Galatians, and I bring this passage up often, but it shows in Galatians six twelve, it shows a place where uh, we can get to remove ourselves. And it says, and many desire to make a fair showing in the flesh. They constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Which is to say, you can do all many Christian things. You can do many moral things and you will not suffer persecution from it. But it's when you say that there is a truth that cannot be changed, that we are sinners and we need a Savior. That's where the cross becomes uh, the place of offense uh, to people. Continuing here. And so, the, and it shall turn to you for a testimony that the upside of persecution for sharing the gospel is what? More opportunities to share the gospel, which is exactly what you wanted in the first place. So many stories. We heard one just last Sunday. Tony shared with us about sharing the gospel. Persecution came. More testimony came. We've heard from our missionaries in the field some years ago in North Africa. There's an arrest. The rest puts them in jail. What does that give? More opportunities to share the gospel. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom with all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And, and it's I will give you the words when those times will come. Verse 14, settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer. I will give you the words the same during these times. History is filled with people that at their death 
had words that you'd say, how in the world did they say those things at that time? God gave them the words at that same time, and he said to give them peace. Somebody recently shared one of those with me, and I would say, I would hope that I would stay strong for the Lord. But I feel like my last words would be like, please just get this over with, all right? <laughs> screaming like, and Trent screaming like a girl, you know, <laughs> stood firm in the faith and said, please get this over with, all right? Uh, but they don't. And you read those stories, and it's not in their own strength that the Holy Spirit enabled them in those moments to give us those things. And he shall be between. Now this, not just... In history, and not just in, in prayer letters, but this has become personal. Betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you, they shall cause to be put to death. That group of people that he's speaking to, they will be put to death and they will be betrayed. He will be betrayed by a friend. Parents and brethren and kinsfolk. And they shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But remember this, there shall not a hair of your head perish. In your patience possess your souls. What is he speaking about when your hair, a hair of your head shouldn't perish? The next verse says, we're speaking about our souls. That will never be taken from us. Verse number 20 talks about Jerusalem being compassed about and the dissolution that is near and people will flee. The day of vengeance takes us down to verse number 24 until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled to the end of this age, to the end of this church age. And then Jesus will return for us and those seven years of tribulation will come until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You know, there's things in modern events that unfold that cause us to consider movement in that direction. 1948, the state of Israel was reestablished um, as a, a state, um, as a country. Not, not really established, just recognized by other states, by other countries. 2017 president at our time recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And these are biblically significant reasons that this little country remains in the middle of the discussion. And we should see them as we read the Bible, that God had made promises to them that he will fulfill. And so from our current perspective, we're not surprised uh, by this persecution, but he is giving that to them. And then he tells them that they should lift up their heads, verse 25, and there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress the nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. And these things begin to come to pass. Then look up and lift your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Jesus explaining what's going to happen before the time where the temple is destroyed and he comes back and sets up his kingdom and he gives us this. He gives us comfort and he gives us hope. And then it ends here with the parable of a fig tree, verses 29 through 31, how the, they will shoot forth and knowing of your own selves that summer is nigh at hand. We understand this. You don't have to know much about biology to understand how this works. In Matthew, it speaks of not just of fig trees, but of other trees. For all of us here in Georgia, it could be the dogwood tree right here right now, right? You're like, you know when the dogwood tree is blooming, it's beautiful, but you are going to need our inhalers and our Claritin D, and we know the time of the seasons is coming uh, for us, all right? This is where the, Georgia tries to kill some of you uh, during uh, this season. And you see it, and you see it opening, and you know that spring um, is coming. Just like as a person would look out the window and watch the seasons change, you and I should look through the window of Scripture and live with anticipation for the Lord's return. We can and should live with great anticipation about our Lord's return. 
We can and should live with great anticipation about our Lord's return. It's that thing that should always be on our heart. Like, why is it that I'm so happy today? I forgot. What was the good news that I heard? Oh, yes, Jesus Christ died for me, and someday he is coming to return. Mark went with me to the hospital to see our Uncle Kim, and he shared with him. He said, um, Uncle Kim, he says, you know what? He may return before you go and see him. And that great, brought great comfort to him, and it should bring great comfort to you as well. And so here was our opening question. But when shall these things be? And so has the destruction of the temple come, or will it come? And I believe the answer to that is yes. It has come, and it will come. He made a prophecy there. And 40 years later, that temple was destroyed, and they saw it. And it was the fulfillment of what he said. And it ought to bring great excitement to them, as it would bring great excitement to us that God has fulfilled his word. And, and will it come? Yes. Which means there will be a temple someday. Which means that God is not done with the nation of Israel. And that a temple will be built, and that somebody will walk into Israel and make a treaty with them. And that all these things that are going to be said are going to happen, and we should expect that to be the case. So verse number 32, where it says, I say unto you, the generation shall not pass away, till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but the word should not pass away. So there's a generation that Jesus was speaking to that would have seen the temple on that day be destroyed. There's also a generation that will see the beginning of the end, the end, the beginning of the tribulation, and when these things start, then they should expect to see the end of it, that same generation. So here's some application. All of that was this introduction. Here's the sermon in the next three to four minutes, all right? Here's what it is. Remember, Jesus came the first time we celebrated every year around December, and there were some gifts that were there for him. What were the gifts that were given to Jesus in the manger? They were go, frankincense, and myrrh. We say them in that order. They say that there was three wise men. I believe that there was probably a few other wise men, and they signed their name to the card, right? Because when I was a single guy, I went to a lot of parties. I was like, I didn't remember bringing anything. Can I sign my name to the card, all right? There's three gifts. Probably five wise men. I don't know. And so there's gifts that are given to them. And so what about this? Jesus is going to return. This passage is about his return to set up a kingdom. But we know that he is coming for the church before all of that, that we are taken out, that we're missing when you're studying it. You find where did the church go, all right? He came and he got us. So when he returns for us, could there be some gifts that he would receive from this church? And whoever is in it at the time, who uh, our kids or our great-grandkids or the people that they reach, well, they find these things, that there are people that are aware and anticipating his return. We can and should be living in hope that he will return. Verse 34, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with suffering and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that the day come upon you unawares. That you need to pay attention, take heed to yourselves, that your heart is not overcharged. This suffering, it speaks about an, an indulgence where there's no more desire for something because you've consumed so much of it. A drunkenness, a desire just to escape the realities of life and then the cares of this life. They're so numerous and consuming. Take heed that you don't live your life just indulging, that you live your life not thinking about this, that you live your life so caught up with all the affairs of this world that you do not anticipate his return. Take heed unto this. This heart will be overcharged. Someone in here yell out to me what you've been thinking about and worrying about as I've been preaching my sermon today. Okay, nobody doesn't want us to do that, all right? But you have stuff. 
Every one of you has stuff in here. And it wants to overtake your heart. It wants to just fill your mind. You think about the future all the time. But are you thinking about the near future in yourself? Are you thinking about the future that Jesus Christ has described for us? The eternal one. You know, in here, believers, we're not just friends for life. We're friends for eternity. We're in this together. You ought to think about that, Coach. Amen for that, all right? We are friends for eternity, neighbors for life, Coach and I. And so for all eternity, we should think about that. Consider the day will come when no man knows of its angels heaven, but the Father only, as in the days of Noah. Let this reorder your week. Let this reorder your thoughts. Let it provide comfort for you. Yes, you need to be thinking about the future, but you need to think farther than you're currently thinking. Think about all eternity. Think about where you'll be at a thousand years from now. Think about where you'll be at a hundred years from now. The old Moody says this, just gripping. It says, the moment a man realizes that Jesus Christ is coming back again to receive his followers to himself, this world loses its hold upon him. Has your heart been overcharged? With all these cares of this life, what is something that's going to allow you to take the hand off of the heart that this world has gripped is recognizing that the Lord is going to return. Thinking upon that causes you to be able to let the world to let loose of you. So people that are aware and anticipating, that will be our gift for him. Secondly, people who live lives altered by the truth. Titus 2.12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Thinking about the world to come should cause us to alter the way that we live in this present world. We should live distinctively, people. We should live as citizens of another nation, right? We should live as citizens that are not of this world. I love my time with the teenagers because I hear them talking about, hey, I'm trying to engage my friends in giving the gospel, but I don't want to get caught up in the same kind of gossiping, or I don't want to get caught up in the same kind of things that they're doing. I want to engage them in it, but I don't want to be, get involved in what they're doing. They're trying to live out their heavenly citizenship here on this earth. Their lives are reflecting the world that is to come. And then lastly, We should be, he should find people helping others find and follow Jesus. Verse 35, and they shall dwell on the face of the whole earth. For a snare shall come to them and that dwell on the face of the whole earth. This truth applies to everybody who will ever live. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, and those that are dead in Christ. And then it goes on to say in verse number 18, that we should comfort one another. The thoughts of His return, the thoughts of the world ending after all that was saying, all the things that were said were things that bring us great comfort, but they're things that, ought to, that bring people in this world much cause for concern here. So we should be people that help others find and follow Jesus. Watch you therefore and pray always. You may be accounted worthy. Escape all these things that shall come to pass to stand before the Son of Man. We should first make sure that we are ready, but then we should give all of our lives to helping other people do the same thing. We should be people in here today that live with great anticipation and receive great comfort about the fact that his words have never failed. And that he will come and do exactly what it is that he said that he is going to do. So we started off our day with this question, which is, when is it going to be and what is going to happen? And Jesus answers it for us. And so the question in here is, are you going to trust the answers that he's given? Is the words of God given to us right here going to have implications upon the way that you and I live our lives? 
And as believers in here, we should, we should make some, some good decisions. We should be, be well to be interested in the same things that those early disciples were. Their questions are good questions. And Jesus' answers are perfect answers. And we should allow it to alter our lives however he sees fit. Maybe the day you'd recognize that you've let your heart be overcharged with the cares of this world. Probably like the rest of you, when I think about overcharged, I think about the time since we first married when I'm like, oh, apparently there isn't any money on that card, all right? And uh, the card had ran out, all right? That wasn't a very good way to balance a checkbook. Somebody will just tell you, right? If you don't know, somebody else will tell you when you're overcharged. There's just nothing left, there's nothing left to give. Uh, the, the indulgences of this world, the, the worries about the cares of this world, the escaping this world, it has just taken up way too much real estate in the hearts of believers. And the day ought to be a reset. And say, I think about the future, and I do all kinds of planning, but I don't think about the future a thousand years from now, and I don't plan according to that. That's the ought to be altering our work weeks. You ought to take your calendars, and you ought to wipe them clean, and you ought to say, how would I make the calendar for this week and this month and this year with the understanding that this is on to soon be passed, and I will be with him. And that today would be a good day to hit reset on your life so that you will live not just for what is most important, but for what is most um, true and eternal. Would you bow your heads so we could pray together just for a moment? Believers, I want to give you a time to pray at your seat or if you'd like here at an altar. Piano will play. You have that real opportunity. I would encourage you to do that. As I speak here, you speak and to the Lord. I want to try to, and as you do that, and as believers in here make good decisions, maybe your decisions in here about taking next steps, about going deeper in God's Word, so you can live it out clearly. If it's not understood clearly, it won't be lived out clearly. So study it. And maybe the day we have the opportunity, you'll make a decision in your seat, and then afterwards you'll put it into action. You'll go to the next steps table, you'll talk to somebody, but you can make a decision that you could put into action today. Believers in here make good decisions. And believers, as you're praying and you're considering how you should respond to this word, let me do what I told you that we ought to be doing until his return, which is helping people find and follow Jesus. Maybe right now you don't know what it is that you should be praying. You don't know what it is, the good decisions that you are to be making because you have yet to make the most important decision of your life and eternity, and that has to do with Jesus Christ. I want to tell you today, we have a Redeemer. We have one who came here, and he died for us, and he's coming again. And he came here the first time, and he died in your place, and he died in my place, and he paid the payment for those sins. And the day he offers you a gift, and he allows us to be the ones that are extending that gift to you, which is to tell you to put your faith and trust in him. Many people in this room did this at a young age, some of them older in life, and they cried out to God, they confessed their sins, and they prayed to him, and they said, I want that hope in life and in death and for all eternity. And that's available for you today. That gift sits upon a table, and you're going to make a decision, maybe for the first time, maybe for many times, and quite possibly maybe for the last time, before the Lord returns, you make a decision about what you will do with a gift that is offered. And I would love nothing more than the opportunity to help you receive that gift today. As David Du Bois will come and get in the place, and here in a moment he'll share the offering devotion with, with us. 
I want to pray with you right now to the believers and the unbelievers that we would all make the decisions that God has laid upon our hearts today as application of his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for being clear. When the disciples asked questions, you made it clear that you will return and that your word will never fail. And Lord, we see that your word never failed. So that temple would be destroyed and it was destroyed and it will be built again and destroyed again. Lord, we trust you in your word. You've proven yourselves to be faithful. You've proven yourself, Lord, to be all-knowing and all-loving. And we thank you for this. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that have put their faith and trust in you. And now we're trying to figure out how would you have us to live out the days here on earth? How you could use us, Lord, to be people that anticipate your coming. How we could have our lives shaped by this knowledge. and How we could be people that help people find and follow Jesus. And Father, as we end the day, I pray if there's those in here today that have never put their faith and trust in you, and they're not prepared for these things, that the day would be a day of preparation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.